We're going to talk about joy today. And so when I originally started thinking about uh, being joyful, you know, we always go to this sort of thought that it's this happy emotion, right? And we think about uh, celebrations and, you know, this or <laughs> whatever, right? Um, but we're in this third week now, this great anticipation of the nativity, right? This moment uh, where Jesus arrives and we celebrate that together. And it's been interesting as we've gone through these themes. And again, I just want to remind you, in case you haven't been here or have forgotten kind of where we've been. My little uh, clicker is not working here. So, yeah. We spent all the money on the suit, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure there's a... There we go. Hope. So hope is the expectation of something promised or desired, like when you hope that you click a button and the slide will change. So the idea here, of course, that we've been talking about is like Peter taught us that, that we have... We're born into, right? We're born again into this living hope. And that living hope is Jesus. And through him... Uh, what awaits us, this eternal life, this uh, eternity with him and with the Father is something that we will have in a future day. And it's something that can't be stolen. It's something that can't be uh, marred or touched or stained in any way because it's there waiting for us. It's this confident expectation and anticipation in God's future. And that impacts the way that we live, at least it's supposed to impact the way that we live in this present life. And then uh, next we had the theme of peace, and we learned that the word for peace is shalom, which is more than, sorry, that's not the right slide there, if I can see that. It's more than not fighting, but finding wholeness or completeness in God. And we talked a lot about that word uh, shalom. And the idea is that through Jesus, we are supposed to be makers of peace, helping to reconcile all men with God through Emmanuel, right? God with us. That's the idea there. And uh, Peter talked a lot about that, and so we've learned some things there. And then this week, we come upon our theme of joy. And joy, there are a couple words that are, there's a lot of words actually that are translated to joy, but the primary words are the Hebrew word simcha, and then we have the Greek word chara. And you'll see those showing up. But joy is an emotion of happiness, right? That's what we would typically describe it as, this emotion of happiness, uh, that um, we have this full sense or this deep feeling of lasting satisfaction. That's really what joy should be. And so we have moments of joy, like you know when the kids open their presents or whatever. You might remember when you were a kid, and there was something that you looked forward to, and you opened it up, and you were so excited. Or you tell someone something, and they get like just they're bubbly with emotion because they almost can't wait for that moment to come. Right, or you announce like you know from the pulpit that uh, Josh and Ashley Hobart are getting ready to have another baby. Like that's a joyful thing, right? That's pretty joyful. We like kids around here, if you can't tell. So that there there should be a joy that associated with those kinds of things. It is an emotion. It is a happiness. But there's more to it than that. Um, the Jewish people believed that uh, joy was a great mitzvah or a commandment. Uh, to always be in this state of happiness, which is maybe hard for us to think about that, to always be in that state. Uh, when a person is happy, they believed that they're much more capable of serving God in those moments and going about their daily activities. They can be more effective than when they're depressed 
or upset. And maybe we found that to be true in our lives too, you know, that it's a lot easier to talk to somebody about what God's doing in your life or what's going on there uh, when there's some joy or some happiness. Uh, The Jewish people also believed that this commandment had no connection to what you possessed. Uh, There was this extra measure of righteousness that they believed people had uh, when you were capable of having joy serving God and going through your uh, daily activities um, in the midst of poverty or childlessness or poor health, which were the big three for them. That's how they measured sort of like the success in life. And so lots of times people didn't have all three of those things. If they had all three of those things, they were super, super blessed. But there were often times where they lacked one of those things. And so they believed that uh, the joy that you had had no connection to where you stood in those things. And so you're probably thinking right now as we get into this, well, so you're asking me to have more joy. And I get that, but... How do we do that? Like, how is that even possible? I mean, you don't even know, man, like what my week was like, what's going on. I mean, how do, have, how do I have joy when my world is falling apart around me? Or how do I have joy when money is tight and the checking account is dry and the bills continue to pile up? Where's the joy in that? How do I have joy when I struggle to even know what I want to do with my life or what I want to be when I grow up and I'm 63, right? Speaking for someone else, obviously. Hopefully it's obvious. How do I have joy when my health is constantly failing? Or how do I have joy when I get this call that I have a loved one that's being rushed to the ER? Or how do I have joy when I find out that someone I love has passed away suddenly? Right? These are all real things. These examples are just a sampling, folks, of what's happened in this little community this week. This season alone, you know, we celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah. And for some people, this is a really joyful time. Like, they can't wait. I mean, I know people who are, I mean, right in October, they're already working on the Christmas projects, the decorations. Right? It's joyful for them. But for others, this season can be a stark reminder of how things will never be the same as we think about maybe a loved one that we've lost that won't celebrate with us. Or maybe even just how things were better back then, kind of, you know? So where's the joy in that? If any of these things describe you today, I want you to know first that you're not alone, that you're sitting around people that struggle with these very same things, and we are here as a part of this community together But I also have some good news for you that the hope that we talked about, the peace that we talked about, and the joy that God offers you today is not just some hollow, yay, kind of thing, right? It's not just this superficial empty, like, okay, it's got to be joyful because God says to be joyful. Yay, right? We all met that person. We know that person. If you've been in a church in any time at all, you know that person. How you doing? I'm just, I'm great. Right? And there's a part of that you're just like, that, I mean, that's awesome that you live that, but that's not how I feel. How do I feel that way? God has a joy for us that has roots that go deep in order to sustain us in times like this. Joy is a choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Many of you probably heard of Rick Warren and Kay Warren, right? They're 
Purpose Driven Life and, and many, many books that they've written. Kay Warren has actually written a lot about joy. And if you don't know their story, I don't have time to go into it, but they've been through some really, really hard things in their life. Uh, she has a book called Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough. And this is a quote from it. She says that joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I want you to notice something. You will find nothing about uh, happy feelings in that definition. Because we all know, and Scripture even tells us, that happiness is fleeting, right? It's a temporary thing. And if you've ever tried to be happy all the time, you know that it's impossible. So today... We have this opportunity really to join in with men and women of God who have gone on before us. The biblical writers experienced joy in spite of the circumstances that they found themselves in. And we have an opportunity to do that too, no matter what we're going through. And so there's this one point uh, in history where, and we've talked about this a lot here, but just in case you're new, uh, the people of Israel... God allowed the Babylonians to come in. And basically, the people were being disobedient. God had given them tons and 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 lots and lots of chances. Because that's how God is, right? And finally, he says, you know what? I've got to set this thing right. And so I'm going to use the Babylonian army to do that. And so he allows them to come in, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple, and the people are weeping. And it's like, how in the world could this happen? And then they take... A lot of the people, the best and the brightest, and they take them all the way back to their kingdom in Babylon. And so you probably heard of stories like Daniel, right, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All those stories happen in Babylon. God allows those people to be taken away, and they languish there for almost 100 years. And there are many of the people that are questioning, right? They're like, yeah, we know we deserve this. They'd given up hope thinking, man, you know what? I know God made us promises, but we didn't keep up our end of the bargain. And so, maybe we're not his people anymore. They begin to ask questions like, well, you know what? Maybe God's just given up on me. Where do I go from here? What do I do? But what's cool is there was this series of miracles that have been happening behind the scenes. And God was moving on the hearts of these pagan kings. And all of a sudden... Little remnants, which basically means leftovers, little groups of leftovers go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. And most of that story takes place in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people return. And as soon as they return, they are immediately met with all of this oppression from the neighboring people because they'd kind of gotten used to them not living there and not being there, and they'd taken over land. And now all of a sudden, these folks show up again thinking they're just going to walk in and take my farmland from me. No way, man! Right? So they come in to the situation. God leads them there. Things are hard. Things are difficult. They're struggling to provide for themselves. They're struggling to get walls built. They're being attacked. All these things are happening. But here's what's interesting. Ezra and Nehemiah start to realize that that stuff is all really just part of the problem. It's just symptoms of what was really going on. And so they start to confront the heart issues in the people that led them astray and into captivity in the first place. 
So Ezra and Nehemiah decide to hold this revival of sorts, right? And so they bust out the Torah scroll and they start reading it aloud to the people. But scripture is really clear. It says that they made every effort to make sure that every man and woman understood what it was saying to them. So there they are. And all of a sudden, something clicks in the people as they understand the word of God. And they start to reflect upon it in their hearts. And then they are overwhelmed with grief at their sin and their disobedience. And it's here in Scripture that we find this really odd response from the leaders. But this response points to our source of joy. We're in Nehemiah 8, starting with verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, of course, this is in the midst where they are ruined by what they've just heard. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. So if you need an excuse for the men's bake sale, there it is right there. Eat the fat. Celebrate. It's always our theme today, right? Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you have heard that scripture before? How many of you heard that scripture in that context before? Right, a few of us. When you get the backstory, that's amazing to me because we just kind of throw that out there, right? Just, oh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. But we don't get the context in which that was shared. I think it's important. He's encouraging them to celebrate these holy days. It's basically the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It's a harvest festival, just like Thanksgiving, right? We have Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is all about eating the fat, right? It's all about eating delicious things and celebrating and being thankful for what God's provided. And that's what they're commanding them to do here. It was to be marked with feasting and gladness. That's why he encourages them to drink the wine, too. The people have been moved in this moment to the state of repentance as they understand what God requires of them and how they've fallen short. But the leaders say to them, listen, guys, listen, listen. This conviction is a blessing. You've found your joy where it counts in the Lord. And today is a holy day and we will celebrate it. And so that's our first point today. The foundation of our joy is established in following the Lord. This joy can only come from shalom or being at peace with our creator to be people who have a restored relationship with our Father. The other part of this that's important for us to remember is that this joy comes from God alone, right? He gives it freely. Psalms 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We just sang about that fullness of joy. It's only found in the presence of God. Total joy comes from being fully reliant on God. And here's what's cool. As we become dependent on him, our capacity for joy in any circumstance will grow. Which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? 
It's like, it kind of seems like I should be more dependent on myself so that when I get into these problems, I can figure stuff out and then I can move forward. And listen, God gave us common sense and all that stuff. He wants us to be thinkers. But when it comes to living our lives, he wants us to be totally reliant on him. So when we don't have control, because there's so much in these situations we have zero control over. Those are the moments that we can be dependent on him. And no matter what the circumstances that surround us, whatever that looks like, our capacity to have joy grows. And it's enlarged because God grows that in us as he tests us. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But another reason that that joy is enlarged and it grows in us is because he wants us to share it. Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Listen, every one of us in this room right now, if we think of somebody, we can think of somebody that fits the first line, a person in our life that has a joyful heart most of the time. But we can probably all think of somebody that fits that second description too, can't we? Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a librarian. Maybe it's somebody sitting right next to you. In the, I'm just kidding. But the point is this. If this is a commandment, if this is instruction, it means that we have some measure of control over this. And if you're like me and you're thinking about joy, this is probably the verse that you think of. Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Probably thinking of the song right now, aren't you? Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, right? It's pretty easy to learn. Paul wrote these words. And he knew this well, rejoicing in the midst of whatever was going on. This letter was to the Philippian church, and he wrote it to encourage them and to correct them in some things. But the letter is all about joy. Now, here's what's crazy. He wrote that letter after he'd been in prison for about four years. And I don't care what you see on TV. Prison is not a joyful place, okay? Yet over and over again, we see God's people... When they face hard things, circumstances, they're bound up by things that are beyond their control. All of a sudden, this theme of joy pops up. And the same is true for us when we're imprisoned. When we feel imprisoned by the circumstances of our lives, we can still have joy. We can. We started Advent with this encouragement of Jesus being our living hope. And when I think of a living hope, I think of something that is continue. It's organic. It continues to grow. It continues to expand. So many of these concepts, when like we learn them, we feel like I think it's just our Western culture or something. But it's almost like it's just a moment. Like okay, I say a prayer and I'm a Christian, or uh, I have hope in Jesus and so I have it, and then it goes on from that moment. Or I have peace in Him and it's there, and sometimes I come back to it. But the reality of this is, is if we're called to this living hope, it should be something that continues. Like it grows, it increases. It may ebb and flow sometimes in life, but ultimately it's something that's always there. Because of His life and His death and His resurrection, we get to follow Him into all things. And that includes someday living eternally with the Father, which is going to be off the hook, okay? We won't need suits like this. But until then, 
we learned a couple weeks ago that that inheritance that he stored it up for us, that he's saving it, he's holding on to it, that it's like under lockdown. Nothing can touch it or hurt it or destroy it or mar it or blemish it or stain it because it's under his protection until the time is right. And we were actually reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 when we discovered that. And here's what he goes on to say. This is verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. I like how he kind of adds it in there. If necessary. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what he holds on to us for us. And there's a few things that I want to point out here. Trials come and go, but they're not forever. That's the first thing that he said there, right? Sometimes they're going to happen. But hopefully, and I don't believe they are, but most lives are not a continuous trial. They come and go, but they're not forever true trials. The second thing is that Our faith is being tested by the fire of trials. And the language that he uses here suggests something kind of cool that we kind of miss in the English. But the language here suggests a refining process that proves the worth of our faith. This refinement proves the worth of our faith. So most of you know this, but in order to refine gold, when you dig it up out of the ground, it's got like all kinds of other stuff mixed in with it, all kinds of... Uh, other ores and minerals and things that are crusted together with it. And so they will take that and they'll put it in this crucible or this furnace and they will heat it up to a certain temperature. And when they do that, all of these things start to separate and all the stuff that's not gold will rise to the top and then, then they will skim that off the top. And they'll keep doing that until that gold has been purified, until it reaches the point where it's as pure as it can be. Most of us know that. All these mixed up things are kind of unlocked and they're freed and then they're skimmed off the top. But here's something that's funny that I had never thought about until I was studying for this. It's like even before anything happens to that little nugget, that rock, that mixed ore thing that they find. Even before anything happens, the value has always been there. The value has always been buried underneath the surface, just waiting to be freed. But it's only through the purification by fire that the impurities float to the top and then they can be removed. Thus increasing the value or the worth of that gold. I believe that the same thing is true for our faith. Folks, it's true. We grow the most through testing. We grow the most through the hard times. All you have to do is look at Scripture, and every time Israel got comfortable, and things were cool, and they had plenty, and there was nothing on the horizon that threatened them, it seemed those were the times that they fell away from God. And then the cycle would begin, and all of a sudden, he would send something to encourage them to return to him. And then they got hard-pressed in some type of situation, and then they repented, and they cried out for help, and then he would be gracious to help them. I think we do the same thing. 
We fall away when we get comfortable sometimes. And then when things start to get hard, that's when we press back into God. We hope for a future, and he mentions it here. We hope for this future that we've not yet experienced fully. And God wants to prepare us for that. Meanwhile, he has work for us to do here. And every trial or testing is meant to refine us. It's meant to shape us. It's meant to bring out the character of God's son in us. He wants us to reflect his character. He wants us to be people that are reliant on him. But joy is not just reserved only for this future when we see Jesus clearly, and we will someday. When he's revealed, that's going to be an amazing moment. But the joy that God wants us to have, he wants us to have now. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about Christian joy, and Dr. Jerry Root sums it up this way. Joy is a deep-seated longing that is questing for its proper object. Joy is a deep-seated longing that is questing for its proper object. So I translate that to mean that our lives are made for worship. We were created to worship, and no matter what we do in life, no matter where we go, no matter how we express ourselves on this planet, we are going to worship something. It will either be the object of affection, the one and only that deserves our worship, or it's going to be something else. A lot of times it ends up being ourselves, seeking pleasure, doing the things that we think are right, being selfish, Our lives are made for worship. And when we find the proper object of that worship, we find the capacity for joy in every circumstance because our Messiah is the proper object for this worship. Peter says here, even now we love him and we believe in him, though we may not have seen him. I mean, Peter did, right? Peter saw him in person. Peter was the dude that trucked out on the water, which is still just the coolest thing to me. If it's really you... Have me come out of the boat. Bring it. See what you got, Pete. Come on. Have you ever thought about what he would say if he didn't tell him to get out of the boat? Like, what would that mean to him? If it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat. (laughs) Ah! Right? I mean, they were already freaking out. If I were Jesus, I might have messed around just a little bit with them, okay? He's much more gracious than I am. Peter had seen him in person, but he knows that the people that he's writing to had not. All they had to go on were the testimonies that the apostles and others had given. All they had to go on was looking at this whole group of men and women that had given up their lives and refused to recant. So he's like, listen. We love him and we believe in him, even though I know you've not seen him. But you have found salvation in him. And you have experienced the presence of God's spirit. Not only that, but you guys have seen it at work. You've watched as people were healed. You've watched as people did amazing things that you knew they were not capable of doing on behalf of the Father. So he's like, listen... That should be exciting. This should be exciting to us because this joy should be building for this anticipated day of his second return. This moment as it draws closer and closer and closer until he's fully revealed. And maybe you're saying to yourself, because even back then, I have to 
read scripture and feel like there was some disappointment. They were talking about it being any day now he's going to come back. And obviously he hasn't yet. And I think we can grow complacent in that. We can be like, you know what? I've been hearing that back since they scared the tar out of me with the Thief in the Night movies. He's coming back any minute. Watch out for the dude with the mustache. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was this scare tactic movie that they showed kids and adults, I guess, too. It was really scary. All about the rapture and different things. But there should be an anticipation. And I think sometimes we lose that anticipation. So here's how I look at it. Every year we live is a year closer until Jesus comes back. Every month that we live is a month closer to his return. Every day is a day closer until the moment when we will see him face to face. Every minute. Every nanosecond. And that end result that he offers us is an eternal salvation, this completion of the work that God's doing us. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but these themes that we've been going through have been kind of compounding on each other. Because we started with this hope, and that's where everything begins. You find this hope in Jesus. When you first meet him, it's like, I am at the end of my rope. I have nothing. I realize that I have messed up. But I find hope in this Messiah. And then next comes this peace or this shalom, this completeness that only he can offer. And then this week, it seems that this joy in all circumstances flows from the security in Jesus that comes from the peace and the hope that he offers us in the future. And someday he will completely restore this place in our lives. So throughout scripture, hope, peace, and joy, and love, and all of these related concepts, they're mentioned together in various places, or at least implied. Paul directly mentions joy and peace in Galatians 5.22, right? When he gives us the fruits of the Spirit. Basically, these character traits. It's like, this is God's resume. This is what he looks like. The fruits of the Spirit are joy, peace, love, right? Go down the list. Here's what God looks like. You should look like this too. More or less. But here in Romans 14, 17, he links both of these ideas to hope. When he tells us, and this is important, he tells us what the kingdom of God is all about. And so this is probably one you're going to want to underline in your Bible or highlight it or however you do your thing. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in what? In the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Now, the context he was speaking this in is there was all this debate about what people had to do and didn't have to do and how they needed to change their lives in order to fit into this whole thing, right? You had Jewish people, you had non-Jewish people, and they were all trying to figure this thing out. And there weren't a whole lot of direct written rules in this moment. And I love what Paul does here. He focuses on the thing that they all have in common. Righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Through Yeshua or Christ, you are acceptable to God. You're approved by men. So let us what? Pursue peace for mutual upbuilding. Our joy comes from being content and confident in the Lord And the state of the joy that you have 
that you've placed in the Lord, it really has very little to do with your emotions in a given situation, right? And if we look at Judaism, it's a pretty cool example. Everything is terrible. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything's great. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything's awful. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything's kind of okay. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're starting to get the pattern, right? Probably the best example of this in all of Scripture is in a book written by a prophet with a really fantastic name. And this is a suggestion for Josh and Ashley. Habakkuk. This book is all about his struggle, Habakkuk's struggle. He was a prophet, and he was the one that saw the Babylonians on the horizon. He saw all of these things about to go down, and he kind of switches things up because he's not a dude that delivers the message to Israel like many of the prophets. You know, they would stand on uh, the corner of the temple or whatever they would do, and they would shout these things out. They would go different places. Habakkuk's different. His is actually this conversation with God, and there's a reason I love it. It's because it's kind of like me. I can get this because these are the same conversations that I've had with God. So this book is all about Habakkuk's struggle to understand God's goodness in the midst of such evil and injustice in the world. Has anyone ever wondered about that in this room? Yes. Yes, you have. Even if you're shaking your head, no. Yes, you have. I think it's human to wonder about that. Why is there all this evil and injustice in the world? God, if you're awesome and you're the best. So throughout this writing, Habakkuk points out, he starts by pointing out what he's seeing happening. Like, okay, this really bad thing is happening. And then he will go, hey, God, do you see this? He gets God's attention and he directs his attention to the thing. And then he closes it with, well, why don't you do something about this? So it's like, this is awful. Do you see this? Why don't you do something about this? This is awful. Do you see this? Why don't you do something about this? Over and over again in this poetic style, this lament that this book is written in. And I think we can all relate to that. I can. So after spending the whole book pointing out things like war and drought and food shortages and more... The very last words of the book are very curious to me. Here's what he says. It's Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread upon my high places. So here's the question. Because I want to be that guy. How do I do that? How can I trust the Lord in all circumstances? I think the answer is that we need to maximize our joy. Well, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked that hypothetical question. Uh, I found something that I want to share with you. This is not mine, but I thought it was really, really good. 
And this comes from uh, preceptaustin.org. And the question is, how can we as believers maximize our joy? And so if you are a note taker, it's going to be a mad scramble. I can send it to you afterwards. Or if you want to take pictures of these, that's great. But these are all scripture references. Repentance brings joy. Luke 15, 7 and verse 10, 2. The hope of future glory brings joy. We've been talking about that. It's 1 Peter 4, 13. Abiding in Jesus brings joy. That's in John 15, 11. Reliance in prayer brings joy. John 16, 24. This fellowship of believers, am I right, brings joy. 1 John 1, 3 and 4. You can't fool me. I watch you guys smile at each other all the time. New believers in the Lord bring joy, right? Luke 15, 5, Philippians 4, 1, and 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 19 and 20. Hearing that those you have mentored are discipled and walking in the truth brings joy. When you hear that somebody that you invested in on behalf of the Father is living well, doing well in the faith, and lots of these guys, uh, Paul, all these guys will put that in their letters. It's like, I'm so joyful and pleased to hear that all of you people that we instructed are like rocking it for the kingdom. Good on you. Way to go, right? Giving brings joy. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and Hebrews 10, 34. And then last one, fellowship with the Father and Son brings joy. 1 John 1, 3 and 4. And there's a lot more than that, but there's just a few. So here's the thing as we wrap it up. When we take joy and we make it all about the way that we feel... We are always going to fail. We're always going to be disappointed because happiness is fleeting. We see moments in scripture where sadness is actually the appropriate expression. And any faith that's dependent on emotions and feelings is inherently flawed. It has an issue there. Because feelings can mislead us, right? Anyone ever experienced being misled by feelings? Hmm? (laughs) Right? Feelings give us false expectations sometimes. And feelings, if that's the thing that we're chasing, if we're chasing feelings, feelings will always have us striving to recapture some emotion that we had. And I think that's really one of the big places uh, in the church that we've messed up. Especially when it comes to like worship services or conferences or those kinds of things. Now listen, God made us emotional creatures. I am all about it. I mean, you know me, right? The dude that cries all the time. I get it, okay? That's just who I am. I'm just living in my skin here. God made us to be emotional. But if we come into a worship service and it's like, you know what? It just wasn't as good this week. You know, I mean, it was okay, but they had that one guy that was leading. You know, the guy that talks up there sometimes too. And I just don't like it when he leads. Oh, it was great, except I couldn't really hear uh, the conga drums. Very well. And I love it when Jeannie shakes the tambourine and she didn't have a tambourine this week. I'm being facetious, but you get what I'm saying. We do that. We measure like, oh, church was great because worship was off the hook. Or, oh, church was kind of okay because they only had four instruments up there. And I really like lots of people up there. Or we go to this conference and God melts our face off. And then we come back to church and like, eh, this is okay. What's the issue? Is the issue like the places? No, the issue is us. The issue is our hearts. Are we coming in prepared to worship, prepared to dump everything? Worship's not about us. It's about him. 
It's just a reflection of his glory. It's us noticing what he's done. And here's what's cool, though. God's so awesome that he gives us sort of like this, this bounce back effect when we worship him. He allows us to like just throw it all out there and he unburdens our hearts and he frees us. And part of it's because we're singing truth. All these cool things start to happen. And we have this experience that can be really emotional. And maybe like he just ruins us in that moment. And then next week you come in and it's just kind of, what's changed? God's still God. He's still awesome. Trust me. If we're chasing happiness or emotion in our faith, we're going to always end up disappointed because you can't recapture those things. It's about faithfulness, folks. All of the Bible is about faithfulness. It's about God making promises and God delivering on those promises. It's about God always being there to pick us up in those moments, even when we fail him, because that's how kind of this whole thing started, at least as far as much of it as we know. Faithfulness is steady regardless of feelings, and God calls us to be faithful, and that is where we will find joy. We will find joy in faithfulness. We may be happy, we may be unhappy, but we choose to bless the name of the Lord because, number one, he's unchanging. Number two, he's totally worthy of our praise. And number three, we are confident, at least we should be, that he's in control of all these things because he tells us. So to wrap this up, I have something for you. Actually, I'm re-gifting. This is from Paul. It's a little blessing that he gave the Colossian church. It's a prayer, actually, that he shared with them. And I just want this to be our pursuit today as we live in this fullness of life, this fullness of joy that, folks, Jesus died to give us. He died to give this to us. So let this be a blessing to you today. Colossians 1, 11 through 14. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Give thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father God, I just want to say that I'm sorry for all of the times that I've struggled to recognize the places in my life where you are at work, all of the mighty things that you've already done. And really, God, just the places where I've made it about me. I pray, God, that you would make us a people that hold on to the promises that you've given us. That the faithfulness that you demonstrate would be the faithfulness that we hold on to and in turn demonstrate as well, God. For those that are in this room today that maybe you're going through something hard, maybe going through a struggle, maybe this time of year is just a challenge for them. Because they're missing someone. For those that are going through trials and hardships. For those that may be in need in this room. For those that are just trying to figure things out, God. 
I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just meet each of us in that need right now where we're at. God, for those that are struggling with help, that are believing for miracles, that uh, need a touch from you, I pray that you would have mercy and that you will be the healer that you are. But we don't just pray that, God, physically. We pray that mentally and and, uh, spiritually for us as well. For those of us that have broken hearts, for those of us that continue to ask that question, why, God, why do you see this? I pray that you would show us how to be the reconciliation that you want us to be on this planet. And that the joy, the trust that we have in you, even when we don't understand, would just radiate from our lives, God. That maybe we could be the answer that you give someone when they're struggling. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for our Messiah that you sent us to save us, the rescue that we didn't deserve, but we're so thankful for. Go with these people, God. I just pray that you would beam from their lives, especially in the coming weeks, as we celebrate the arrival of your Son, and that people would know that you are God just by looking at us. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the name of your son I pray all of these things. Amen.